Hey everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. As always, brought to you by you with support on Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by Josh Yen. We're going to be reviewing um, the recent debate between uh, Alex O'Connor and Bishop Robert Barron. So it should be a lot of fun. But what's up, Josh? I'm doing absolutely phenomenal. Football's been saved. Everything's been saved. Absolutely phenomenal week. How are you, Zach? <laughs> I'm good. It's been a crazy week, I guess, in England when you have this debate dropping and the debate over the Super League and saving with Chelsea and all those Saints over there that kept European football pure. So appreciate that. But it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, so um, today we're going to be doing a debate review um, between, there was a debate on Unbelievable between Alex O'Connor, the Cosmic Skeptic, and Bishop Robert Barron. Uh, we're specifically, we're looking at a few different things that Alex said with like the existence of God, faith, evil, um, things like that. So before we get into the clips, which we'll pull up very briefly here, do you have any kind of like preliminary thoughts, Josh, before we just dive straight in? I think it was an absolutely phenomenal debate. Very interesting. There's a lot of new stuff as well as a lot of old stuff that I was kind of exposed to in this debate. It was an absolutely phenomenal debate. And I think both like interlocutors had presented themselves really, really well and were very prepared for the debate. So generally a very, very good debate. And if you haven't watched it, just check it out if you if this interview makes it seem or this discussion makes it seem a bit more like interesting for you, make sure you check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, there there is a link down below if you haven't seen the full debate, but I imagine um, you would by now. But there's a lot of fun. So we're going to get into this first bit where Alex is going to talk about contingency arguments and kind of hint towards God of the Gaps almost, at least I think. Um, but let's get started. It's spelled out. Well, I agree with many of the implications of what Bishop Barron is saying. I mean, for instance, I, I very much uh, agree with the idea of an expanse in knowledge, essentially never being able to satisfy our curious minds. And there's that image of, a, of an expanding circle as it gets bigger and bigger, so do the edges. You know, the, the edges, the frontiers of our knowledge get bigger and bigger such that there are more and more things we don't know. Now, that's one of the things that I find so incredible and, and, and beautiful about uh, the scientific and philosophical endeavors that we that we partake in because there's just endless things to discover. I find it quite strange how the Christian might be able to say that, yes, our circle is getting bigger and bigger and the frontiers of our knowledge are getting bigger and bigger. But once we get to that certain point, there it is. We've got it. We have the full circle. We know what it is. We're now satisfied. The thing about atheism is that for most atheists that I know, it's, it's more of a passive thing than an active thing. It's more just saying, listen, I'm not the one who has to do the explaining here. I'm perfectly content to say that our knowledge will continually expand and with it, so will the frontiers. If somebody else comes along and claims that they have the answer, that they have the thing that kind of that, that, that cuts off that progress and says, we've, we've found the answer, we know what's at the base of all reality, then they better have some good evidence for it. And there are plenty of, ev uh, pl plenty of evidences that are put forward and many arguments that are made, such as the contingency argument, which I... Yeah, this is a good place to start, just like the first bit on this. So what do you, what's your take, Josh, on kind of like this first bit of what Alex is saying? Well, I think, I think this part of what Alex is saying does have some sense of... Re it, it is a reasonable response to what Bishop Barron was saying, I think is perhaps the first thing which would come to mind. And first of all, I think he's per perhaps the the most biggest, like the thing that he's saying is perhaps a God of the gaps thing, which mm -hmm. he is put forward here. He's saying like, well, okay, you have this expanding knowledge, but why should we just put God at the end of it? Like, why not just continue allowing our, uh, our knowledge or this horizon to continue expanding? And that's one of the main things I think he's saying here. And and first of all, I'll perhaps give my thoughts on what this God of the Gaps thing is. And I do think that God of the Gaps is one of the things which is often the overused and misused in in like modern day discussions and debates. And I'm not just 
I'm not here to say that God of the gaps is always all right or God of the gaps is always wrong. However, I would say that there are situations where God of the gaps is not actually God of the gaps in, in the sense of a negative light. For example, I think I heard this on some other podcast, some other discussion before. I forgot which one it was, but sometimes what atheists like to call God of the gaps is actually just good abductive reasoning. It's it's like if you if you are looking for a cause of the universe, or if if you reach a point where there is indeed a first cause, it would not be God of the gaps reasoning to suggest that God is the first cause, even though we cannot definitively or empirically demonstrate that there's a physical or or whatever there's a God there, like suggesting that God as a best explanation while it might be seen or suggest as God of the gaps would not actually be God of the gaps if you, or in at least in a negative light. That said, that said if someone just says, well, there's lightning in the sky, must be God, then there, that's completely different thing. So I think that's some, that's some place we could start and that's something that we should all bear in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, if we're going to accept, like, a contingency argument where we have, like, stage one, um, there's some sort of, like, necessary ground that doesn't depend on anything outside of itself for its existence. Um, at some point, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, if you accept stage one, like a lot of people do, you're going to get to this point where there is no further explanation. We can keep asking questions, uh, but at some point, you're going to hit this, like, end of explanation and maybe, like, a brute fact or, like, a necessary being. Um, and, you know, like, some would say that maybe we could explain why God is necessary. Um, but, like, it seems like if we're going to accept stage one of a contingency argument, this is going to happen regardless of whether you're a christian or an atheist so um yeah and then he's, anything else you want to add before we go a little bit further i'd just like to perhaps just focus a bit on bishop barron's thing because i think that it's also quite nice to think about what alex is responding to as well and and what i kind of say is that or at least what i think bishop barron is saying is that well there is a drive for things like truth and others and he's just basically saying well there is this drive within us which which is pointing towards some truth some extrinsic or something which is outside of ourselves some truth that we are trying to search towards and everything that we see or everything that we find does not satisfy our desire for the truth and hence we're continuously searching we're kind of pursuing this and there's this found frontier which is continuously expanding and we have to continue following it and at the end of it you will finally see some ultimate frontier something which goes beyond that frontier i think he says something like and he says well beyond that frontier is points towards the existence of some fundamental truth or some fundamental reality, which does actually satisfy the human desire for knowledge. And that's just something to keep in mind because he does indeed raise two arguments. I think Bishop Barron, he raises the contingency argument and also this other frontier argument, which is, I, I have to admit, I'm less familiar with it, but I think that's something to keep in mind as well. And if you're interested in that, make sure you watch the debate. Mm. Yeah, there's there's actually this interesting um, in Bishop Barron's conversation with Jordan Peterson, where he talks about like how he thinks the West is um, the first culture to believe that we can find all of our satisfaction or desires within ourselves. Um, so it's interesting that it kind of overlays more. But this next bit's really interesting, which I've discussed on your show in in uh, in, in more detail before, Justin, with Cameron Batuzzi, of course. Um, the the thing about it is that my job as an atheist is essentially to pick holes rather than to necessarily present an argument to say why it's false. It's more of an undercutting uh, approach than a rebutting approach is what I like to use. Um, with contingency, when I was on your show before, uh, there's an assumption, for instance, that contingent things exist, um, which is an assumption that often goes unanalyzed. You know, the idea that actually I could have not been born or uh, that, that you know, this this glass that I've got on the table here could have been a mug instead or something like this is how contingency is often described. But as I spoke about before on your show, Justin, that's not entirely it's not clear that that's necessarily true. Uh, if, for instance, we live in a deterministic universe where everything is following a causal chain whereby it actually couldn't have been different. Um, so there are there are certain 
assumptions that I think often go unanalyzed in these arguments. And you can have an entire discussion about the nature of contingent objects and whether they exist. But you can also have an entire discussion if you just grant that they do and say, is it not the case, as David Hume suggested, that if you have each contingent object explained by another contingent object, you've explained the whole? Uh, and there's plenty of discussion to be had there. The problem is that these discussions are so large and so wide ranging that to say, actually, no, we, we, we've solved the problem. We've solved all of these all of these holes that you can pick. We're going to plug them up with God. And, we, and, we, and, and not, not, just, not just as a God of the gaps, not just as a, well, we don't really know. Let's just say that God did it. But as a kind of, no, this is the best explanation for all of these things. I, I just, I, I fail to see it. Mm. It's interesting here because he talks a little bit about like just saying, well, why think the contingent facts exist in the first place? And then he gets into um, like the whole infinite regress idea. So what are your thoughts, Josh? I, I do think that the contingent facts, and I do think that Bishop Barron does say this, is that what contingent facts that Bishop Barron is using is not necessarily contingent in this sense of modality or the common sense of contingent facts that we normally like to hear or we're normally used to in perhaps possible world theories or things like that. Rather, what uh, Bishop Barron is using is like perhaps a more traditional, or perhaps not the traditional, but the literal definition of contingency, which is more like, it is dependence. It's a dependence relationship. So whether or not it is deterministic or not, what you do see is that you either have a temporal chain of causal events, or you have a hierarchical causal chain of events. And and in the in the temporal sense, you, you get to things like the Kalam, and in the hierarchical sense, you get to some things like what Fester says. It's like kind of you have things which is right now in this current state of affair of this current time where our individual actions or layers on this stage of affairs are dependent on other things. And 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 I think that's what Bishop Barron is also pointing towards. It's like the contingency of, well, we are dependent not like temporally on our mother, but rather we are dependent on certain status or certain things in our things in our which then carries on into different levels in existence. And ultimately there has to be a fundamental grounding for this contingency. And as a result has to be you get to this fundamental grounding kind of necessary or or this fundamental thing which is not dependent on further things and hence is not contingent. So I think that I yes, the the depend the determinant thing is 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 a thing in some cases, but not necessarily applicable to the argument that Bishop Barron is saying. And I think you wrote something about modal collapse. So do you want to carry on from there? Yeah, no, there there were a couple of things I noted that were like a little bit different than yours that um that I, I thought about listening to this. And one was this idea is what seems like Alex, Alex is just embracing a modal collapse where like um, if you ad adopt like a deterministic theory of everything, you get to this fact where like everything is necessary. Um, so say if, like for the example, I, I went on a run this morning, I think I ran for like 24 minutes and 53 seconds. Like, well, in, in, in Alex's theory, I couldn't have run for 24 minutes and 52 seconds or 24 minutes and 54 seconds. It was just necessary. I had to do that. Um, which is really interesting because it gets into things with like maybe like moral responsibility where like Hitler killed 6 million Jews because he had to, not because he chose to, not in like a free will decision. Um, so that's really interesting. And then the other thing that I thought about was Alex in his debate with Trent Horn, I believe it was, um, Trent was introducing some sort of like causal principle. And Alex talked about how like quantum mechanics undermined this because you have in like quantum mechanics with like um, 
just certain things you have very chancy events happen where um there's no explanation for why they do there's some sort of cause but then why does it turn out this way instead of another way well it's just chance there's no explanation um and it seems like to me that if you're gonna argue that like alex did in that debate with trent horn i believe um you'd have to go back and fact check me on this then you couldn't use this deterministic theory of everything because there's things without explanation um so it seems like you can't have like an indeterministic theory of quantum mechanics and then also like embrace like everything is deterministic there's no contingent facts um like alex seems to be arguing here so what are your thoughts on that i mean i first have to applaud your strength of going on a 24 minute run in the morning i haven't tried <laughs> to get myself to do exercise for ages i just haven't been able to get myself out the door to go for any run so i have to applaud you on that for the appreciate first. it on, on the assumption that you actually have free will, of course. But, uh -huh. but I do also agree with you that free will is ultimately, I think, perhaps the fundamentally the most important thing in existence or our world right now. And and that is definitely something which cannot be accepted under a, a world of modal collapse or especially a deterministic universe. And I completely agree with you on the your discussions about on the idea of quantum indeterminacy, because I think that even if we just have a if we have a random universe, it is very difficult to say that it's completely determined as well. There is a sense of, there's there's this sense of contradiction here, and not perhaps an explicit contradiction, but there is indeed a sense of, how do I say it? There's, there's a problem, there's a conflict between yeah. the idea of a completely random universe where there, there is a fundamental, and, and of, of course, there's a lot of different interpretations of quantum mechanics. Like there's some quantum mechanics, which does say that it's ultimately determined, although it does seem to be, have random things on top of it. There's some like pilot wave underneath of it, which which seems to be determined. And there's other interpretations of it. But if you take it in an indeterministic fashion, then I would agree, I'll completely agree with you. It's like, you cannot have these two, well, it's very difficult to have these two views together at the same time. So completely agree with you on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else you kind of add on a little bit before we go to um, Alex's thoughts on faith? I not not really. I, I think that's it's pretty good. I think I think they cover it pretty well in the debate and I think we've covered it quite well as well. Definitely. Well let's look at what Alex says on faith now. But the Bible witnesses to people that have had the experience of the breakthrough of the unconditioned. But I, I feel like uh interesting as it may be, this is this is off track from the original point, which is to say, look, I mean you, I think what you're making is a distinction without difference here. You say that Faith needs to be dis distinct from reason, otherwise there's no point in having the term, right? We're, we're talking about something that's distinct from the average kind of, here's a reason for believing something, so I believe it. And you've said, well, no, it's, it's not that I kind of use reason to come to this conclusion, I just have a context of reason from which I arrive at this belief, is I think the terminology you used. I, I'm failing to see the distinction here. In other words, the, the, the question is quite simple, it's like, when it comes to something, some proposition which you would say you need faith to believe, whether that be a religious claim or, or a claim that a person you've met is, is, is making, you either have sufficient reason to believe what they're saying, in which case you're relying on reason, or you don't, in which case, sure, you're relying on faith, but then faith would entail a lack of sufficient reason. Interesting stuff here. Um, so it's like the faith and re reason distinction or lack thereof. So what are your thoughts on this, Josh? Well, I think faith is one of those things which I have to admit is one of the weirdest parts in the Bible. And I think it's very good for them to have covered this topic. And and I think that faith, when you come to faith, I think everyone approaches what faith means to them in a different way. And I don't want to say anyone's 
idea of faith is right or wrong per se. I, I don't want to go around and say, well, you, you have some like idea of faith and that's dreadful or I have an idea of faith and that's like mine's better than yours. Right? I think faith is indeed a very personal thing. And what I think is that if, if faith goes against reason, then, then you have a conflict here. But if faith is in line or compatible with reason, then you have some, you have concord and you could develop your faith off of reason or develop your reason off of faith, as long as none of them have a explicit contradiction. And, and what I like to think is perhaps is that what faith is, is, is best seen in a relationship. And that's what Bishop Barron says by perhaps formulate in a slightly different way in, in the sense that, you know, I have a relationship with you, Zach. I have a relationship with my parents. I have a relationship with those around me. And and of course, when you have, when it, whenever you raise the topic of there are people around me, I have a relationship with you. I have a relationship with my parents and different things like that. There's a firstly always going to be a problem of solipsism or a brain in the van hypothesis, which is almost, at least I think, commonly accepted as it's impossible to completely defeat that kind of possibility. I mean, it is perhaps very, very, very improbable for that to be true, but there is indeed a possibility, just a really far chance that there is actually no one else and you're just, everything is just kind of like, kind of like created around you and, and you don't have any around you. But, but I, that's why I like to see faith as, it's like, yes, there is that possibility, but that doesn't stop me from having that relationship with you. All reason points to you guys being around me. I have that faith with the reason to then accept that you guys exist around me, if you got what I mean, to have that relationship with you. And in the same way, God is like that as well. God exists. Even if you can't prove 100% that God exists, I mean, perhaps if the ontological argument was sound and stuff like that, then maybe God exists as well. But imagine that doesn't work. Imagine you have 70% reason for God to exist. You get to there and you're like, well, that's the faith that I have to take myself the rest of the way. It's not to say reason doesn't exist, but reason gets you a good way there. And that last problem, just in the solipsist case, that last gap, which you use to get to have a relationship with others, is the same way that you get to have a relationship with God. That's a faith that I like to present. And I think that's something that Alex perhaps is not looking at in his critique here. Yeah, one of the things I'd love to ask Alex is like, does reason require like 100% certainty? Because you talked a little bit about like, um, just like these thought experiments, like solipsism, or like the evil demon, um, where it's like, well, it seems like these things are the case, like that, like maybe like the external world is real, or the other minds exist. Um, but we don't really know with 100% certainty. Um, so it seems like we're gonna ha not have that 100% certainty. So do we believe in the external world by reason or by faith? Um, cause it seems like by Alex's, um, kind of like putting these two against each other, then it has to either be by reason or faith. And if I don't have hundred percent certainty, would it just be faith that the external world exists? Um, so it'd just be really interesting to think about, um, cause D Descartes and with like his thought experiments, he kind of goes against the scholastics here and says, Hey, you know, our sensory experiences aren't completely reliable. And he gets into all these different thought experiments. Um, so I think like it involves commitment, um, because it's like, well, we have this good reason to think this, um, which is like what Bishop Barron talks about in his analogies with regards to like what faith is, um, in this debate. Um, so it's just really interesting to think about. Cause like, I think that faith is kind of like the end result almost, whereas like reason can get us to a point where it's like, yeah, I have good reason to think that, um, I'm talking to a person named Josh Yen on the computer right now, but I don't know with hundred percent certainty, I could be deceived. He could be not, uh, like a philosophical zombie or something like that. So it's like faith almost like 
bridges the gap from like what we know to what we think we know um it's kind of at least somehow to some degree what i think of it and like i just like in the notes i got the definition of pistis in terms of like the greek definition of faith and it talks about faith being like persuasion moral conviction of a truth um reliance upon christ for salvation um an extension of the system of the gospel itself assurance belief um to believe faith fidelity like things like that so i just i don't see faith and reason as like completely at odds with each other or else i think we'd have to accept and if they were i think we'd have to accept things like the external world existing by faith um not by reason so yeah that's kind of my thoughts on this i I was thinking about what you said also made me think about something it's like i don't think it's possible for anyone to possibly live solely on reason and the reason why i say that is actually because everyone's belief systems are based on some fundamental presuppositions or some fundamental axioms you can't i don't think anyone could possibly go around it at if you ask anyone a certain degree backwards in their themes, they're going to have to accept some certain things which cannot be proved by mm-hmm. further things behind them. It's perhaps like we say, like the, the belief in other minds or perhaps in mathematics, you do have some axioms like A plus A equals B or like 2A when you have when it's finite mathematics, it goes to infinite mathematics and everything goes kind of a bit wonky. But I mean, if, in a normal situation, it's like you have these fundamental axioms well, why do you believe in that? And of course, you could say, well, some, some things in reality, some things in reality, I mean, sorry, my voice has gone a bit, but some things in reality does apply to these presuppositions or these presuppositions or these ideas, axioms do seem to apply to reality. But then you also have to ask, well, what are the fundamental axioms for that belief as well? And when you, when you get to the fundamental part of your theories or your worldview, you do reach these fundamental things, which you can't really explain, but you just accept mm-hmm. kind of a priori. And when you get to that, it's like, you do have to have some kind of faith to accept that, even if it is reasonable faith. And also just in a, going another way, and as you've said as well, it's like faith is also most importantly, I think in Christianity, it's a relationship as well with God. Like it's not like Christianity is not all about its arguments. It's not all about its it's like the existence of God. Of course, God's existence is very, very important. And I don't want to be quoted to say anything else, but the Bible is mainly focused on your relationship with God, at least the New Testament. And that just demonstrates that if you build your your relationship with God solely on, on rational arguments or arguments, it's like trying to build a house with only one pillar in it. It's going to collapse in the same way. Your, your relationship with God has to go beyond that fundamental perhaps that fundamental relation that fundamental reason and also go into other areas where you're actually learning more about him you're you're interacting with him praying to him meditating on it and that's something that faith also covers where rationality has its boundaries if you got what i mean yeah i think like a good thought experiment is like how do you avoid the regress if you're going to say that you believe everything based off reason like callum in the chat just gave like a bunch of examples of things that you can't just be like scientifically measured um but it's like so like i believe that i'm talking to a person named josh in on the computer now oh why do i believe that um i believe that because i believe my computer is reliable um why do i believe that well i believe that my senses are reliable and it's what i believe my senses are reliable it seems like i can connect to the external world but how do i know that well at some point we're going to run into this like end of explanation um something that jordan peter and Bishop Aaron that talked about that I was listening to just this morning. Um, so yeah, it's a good stuff to think about. So we'll get into this next bit um, where they're going to talk about um, problem of evil for a little bit. So we're going to play Alex here. Hmm. Atheism doesn't claim to have any explanatory power. Okay. Uh, what we can say is that 
we we would expect if there is a if there is a world in which there are conscious creatures, which you know I recognize some people think is unlikely given atheism generally. Um, but if if that's our premise, what would we expect to find? Well, we'd have no reason not to expect there to be all kinds of unpredictable and seemingly arbitrary suffering. It's not me who has to do the explaining here, you know, and, and you're right, Justin, that during a tragedy like this, you find that people come to religion and people go away from religion. That's, that falls in the realm, I think, of, uh, of, a, of a psychological discussion. It's like people might come to God because they find it's a good way to, to deal with the immense tragedy of the suffering that we're facing. But that says nothing about whether or not religion provides a sufficient explanation for why it's happening or justification for, for why it's happening. Because here yeah, I think just very briefly, like, I'd love to comment for just a second. Like, I, I totally like if we're going to make like an evidential argument, I'd grant that like atheism explains um, evil. And then the question is, does theism explain evil? So I just wanted to add that little thought. I don't know if you have anything you want to add here, Josh, before we get into like the rest of what he says. Perhaps I could build. I, I think we could continue on because I think I have a thought which builds on this, but also requires some mm -hmm. other stuff here. So, yeah, we could, I think we go on. Okay, I just wanted to add that because, like, with an evidential argument, you kind of have like, well, evil is expected under atheism; it's not under theism. Therefore, atheism is like more likely to be true. It's kind of like a, a basis of like an evidential argument that he's about to make. Because here's the problem: in order to assert that there is an all-loving God who is supervising this, and because you know, I'm not the one here who is claiming that this is being supervised; that somebody is watching this, somebody knows that this is occurring, and so it's allowing it to occur. If we're going to assert there is a benevolent being who is allowing this to occur, then it must follow that there is morally sufficient reason for this to occur. In the United Kingdom, just today, we've got 100,000 people who've been, who, who've been killed by the virus. And the Christian has to say that this is morally justified. And they're welcome to do so with reference to theodicies by saying that, you know, this is pain. People like to speak kind of abstractly about how pain and suffering might be necessary to obtain certain goods, or it will be compensated in the afterlife or something of this sort. But we have to say specifically on an issue like this, that yes, this specifically, 100,000 people who have died of COVID have done so because God allowed it. That's the first thing that needs to be admitted by the Christian. And most Christians have no problem accepting that. The difficulty comes in, in the second proposition, which is that it's justified. This needs to happen, or this should have happened, or at least there's no kind of uh, moral qualm with this having been allowed to happen. That's the problem that needs and, to be fed. Yeah, this is good. Um, I think it's a good place to stop with regards to this little bit. So what are your thoughts here, Josh, on Alex kind of introducing the problem of evil? Well, I think the problem of evil, and I think he presents it in a very eloquent way in the sense that the problem of evil has and will always be perhaps the most significant emotional challenge for Christianity. I'm not going to deny that. I think I think that, and it goes back to a psychological point, you know, it's like, well, what's the biggest reason for why people come to God might be suffering, not necessarily. What's the biggest reason for why people leave God might be suffering, not necessarily. Both of these things seem to be completely independent of whether God exists or not. And that's one thing that I want to put aside for now. You just keep that in mind and put that aside. Now, at the mm -hmm. other hand, we also have to talk about what he's arguing. He's saying, well, are a sign, uh, well, an atheistic worldview explains or or does it need to, in his words, like to say, does it need to explain or does it have to have a complete explanation of all the suffering and all the evil in the world? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to explain it because perhaps not, it isn't even suffering because suffering has negative connotations. It just is. It is just pain. It is just, why? Well, it's quite difficult to say without saying the word suffering, but you got what I mean. It is yeah. just pain. Yeah, yeah. It is those stimuli and stuff like that, right? And, and that's one thing. 
On the other hand, we could turn to a lot of theodicies and a lot of things like that. But one thing I like to think about first is, is something that I like to call the theodicy of merit. It's like, well, what exactly do humans deserve? What, what exactly do we see on a Christian picture? Because I think the problem of evil, it's too often that the, the atheist likes to propose a problem of evil, has the evil, has the, has the loving God, but doesn't take into consideration what exactly is that loving God, right? Because a, a lot of the times we see the traditional one is God is love, God is all-powerful, there is, there is evil. But that God is love and God is all-powerful, or God is good and God is all-powerful, is a significant reduction. It's a significant, I want to almost say straw man of the Christian narrative. The Christian narrative is so much more than just God is love, God is powerful, is all powerful. There's so much other connotations to that thing, to the concept of God, which explains the suffering. And, and it's important, I think, that when we talk, whenever we talk about the problem of evil, that both of us first assume the Christian narrative and then to find problems with it instead of just saying, well, God is just good and God is just love. And well, let's just only use those two things because looking at it at face value seems a bit weaker. But when you consider other factors, consider the Christian narrative, then you have you, you could solve these or you could at least weaken the problem of evil. And that turns to the theodicy, especially the theodicy of merit and the theodicy of merit, as the name suggests. It's like, well, what exactly do humans deserve? And what I like to say is, well, you were first given life before you've done anything to deserve it. On the Christian narrative, since the beginning that we've born, we've sinned. Like no one on this earth has gone without sinning for 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 a significant or an infinitesimally small time. Of course, if you're born, maybe that first time you haven't sinned. But then you look at what the Christian morality, the code is, it's like, well, do not hate, do not, do not steal, do not hurt, do not harm other people. I'm sure a lot of kids, a lot of young kids do. And I'm not saying that that makes them deserve the suffering as much as everyone else. But there is a sin from babies to adulthood, and that sin just grows. We've started off on almost a black state with a life that no one has actually done anything to deserve. And all we've done is sin and fall short from the glory of God. If you look at it from that perspective, instead of the perspective that we deserve life, we deserve beauty, we deserve pleasure and all that things, if you look at it from the Christian perspective, that we are actually fallen human beings, the question should not be, why is there so much suffering? But why hasn't God carried out his justice on humans and just ended the human project in the beginning? Because if he ended the human project in the beginning, he would have been completely, I think, justified to do so because humans are absolutely fallen. God has no reason or he doesn't need to. He has no obligation to send his son to die for us on the cross. He has no obligation to sustain this world any longer than it already has been sustained. He could have just wiped it out in the, the beginning when humans started sitting. Human project is over. What exactly do you go to, if you got what I mean? Mm, yeah. You need to start with the Christian perspective, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think that's great because like Tato just put in the live chat where you start with like the Christian narrative, um, which is a good place to start because like if we're talking about um, what best explains reality, Christianity or atheism, it seems like just like in the beginning here, at least in the Christian narrative, um, it would explain these sufferings of for us being sinful. We don't deserve this best perfect life. Um, so I agree with you. And then like even further, like I think there are all these philosophical like theodicies or defenses that we could get into um, to kind of explain like, well, why is there the suffering? So I'll just list a few here that I've kind 
kind of seen or discovered that like Gunta has a good list on belief map where he talks about different things like the being free choice will in a choice arena, uh, the forming of our character, God's atonement for people, um, worldly people turning to seek God, love bonds, fortune, suffering, solidarity with Christ in suffering, true evil, conquering stories, and noble unfolding natural order, sacrifice for good causes, being used to those in need, and appreciation of heaven. So I like what you did, Josh, because you started um, just with like the Christian narrative because the debate is what best explains reality christianity or atheism um because the christian narrative does i think explain these things uh, maybe not in the way that we prefer but it does um appealing to like our sinfulness and such um and then there are just all these like philosophical defenses we can make as well um so yeah i i like what you added josh there yes and, and you i any... think mm -hmm. yep, that's i was gonna say if you don't have anything yeah but feel free like i'm not in a rush so what were we gonna say yeah, I was perhaps going to say, and I'm not sure if there was actually a thing that I could use this later on, but building on that free will point, I do think, and, and you know, last time when we were talking about animal suffering, I said it leads to greater good, but I think I could, I, I have since then developed perhaps a more complex view of it. And, mm. and my essentially, my new idea is that it does not necessarily need to lead to greater good. This, the role of evil does not need to lead to good every single time for it to be justified. Because going back to what I think we've said in the beginning, that the importance of free will when we're talking about contingency, what we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the importance of free will? How important is free will? And free will is not just some random concept that brings up, comes up from absolutely nowhere. It's the fundamental cornerstone for our relationship with God. It's a fundamental cornerstone for our, our moral responsibility. It's a fundamental cornerstone for everything. And we can also, I think, with that in mind, also imagine another world where, where there's evil and there's opportunity to do good, but everyone chooses to do evil and there's no good out of it. But does that mean that world is not justified? I don't think so, because everyone in that world has had the opportunity to use that evil to do greater good. So it's not necessarily there's good in the end because that world does not have any good whatsoever coming out from that evil. But at the same time, those free people had the choice to use that suffering to become greater in their relationship with God. And that's something that I've been thinking as well in my life as well. It's like, well, once you accept as a Christian, you see Paul and he's perhaps one of the best expressions of suffering and people uh, facing persecution. And he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's one of the the most overlooked, commonly overlooked um, phrases in the Bible, because everyone's, a lot of people don't like to hide that part of persecution and suffering, hide that away from Christianity. But that is a very important thing that we need to think about. And it's like, well, every suffering that we experience on this world, I think, at least for me, has led me to further appreciate the beauty and the sacrifice that God had on the cross. Finite beings suffering finitely. I mean, at the end of the day, how bad can it possibly get? But for an infinite being of infinite power to come down from heaven to suffer in the most embarrassing, shameful way on the cross, to slowly bleed and suffocate to death. It's an infinite God who had the potential to get away of all of that thing in a quick second, but but decided to die on the cross to suffer for our sins. Our understanding of suffering gives us a greater opportunity, whether we take it or not, to reach sublimation to reach a further relationship with god and to bring good into this world and as a result i think that even if that evil does bring absolutely no good at the end of the day that opportunity that free will to use that evil is sufficient reason to justify it regardless of how humans react
to it, mm. if you got what I mean. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and we'll go to this next little bit here uh, with regards to furthermore on the problem of evil. Among many. God's not one little fussy cause among many, but God is ipsum esse, more like the author of a novel than a character in it, right? And so Dostoevsky allowing all sorts of darkness within his great novels, but still having a commanding uh, viewpoint. It's an analogy that limps like all analogies, but God's more like that than one fussy character among many within the novel. Well, yeah, I mean, when Dostoevsky allows the character to be mistreated, it's certainly good for the plot line, but it's not good for the character. And that's the point here. The Christian, at least the theodicy that's been proposed here, is one saying that, uh, you know, evil is allowed because some greater good can be can be brought brought from it, which which means the corollary of this is that any time an evil exists, any time bad exists, it exists precisely because some good is going to be brought out of it. That is to say, evil is actually an indication that something good is happening, which means that all of these evil instances, and I specifically uh, avoided using instances that have the complication of free will, so I wouldn't use something like the Holocaust, but I use something like the coronavirus or something like a miscarriage. Um, the implication of this, the implication of saying that evil is always an indication that some good is being obtained is to say that these are things worth celebrating anytime that one of these things happens anytime that a tragedy and of course you can see it as an emotional tragedy a christian is still perfectly entitled to say that they're upset by this that they're sad that they're angry that they don't understand the reasons but ultimately philosophically they have to say this is a cause for celebration thank goodness that this has been allowed to happen so that we draw out some good thank goodness that there's hundred thousand people in the no, United now you're killed by this virus yeah, what do you think about this? Um, there's a lot of interesting things here. <laughs> well, I think this is perhaps why I, I was thinking about whether I raised the point just now now or later, because I think it's the idea of the greater good is is responded to, I think, with the previous point that I was putting forth. And it doesn't matter. And even when he says things which do not have anything to do with free will, that doesn't defeat the theodicy, because as I've said, I think I've demonstrated in my previous theodicy, it's possible for there to be evil existing, as a stepping stone or an opportunity for people to act freely based upon that to reach greater good, to reach greater sublimation. So I, I think that this theodicy or this, actually no, not theodicy, this attack or this argument is, is insufficient when faced with under scrutiny. And of course, there is the emotional side that is that is there and there's the emotional problem of, oh my gosh, this we should celebrate. But, but I mean, that's just kind of extreme and... I, I completely agree with Bishop Barron's response. Like you've just got absolutely beyond it. And it seems like you've been possessed by the spirit of Hitchens or something like that. But <laughs> I mean, yeah. What's your thoughts about it? Yeah, no, I mean, the interesting idea I kind of thought about as he was talking is like, he talks about this idea and he does this numerous times this debate where anytime there's an evil, um, there must be some sort of good for God to be like all loving. So he talks about like the example of, I think it was in this bit where um, there's a tsunami and a baby's whoop. Um, stripped from a woman's arms and it's like this really sad tragic thing and it's like I think Alex is kind of thinking well god there must be some sort of good that comes from that and I think a lot of the times um, when people like will pose the problem of evil they think it's like this direct good where it's gonna like directly apply on like this exact person um, and maybe that's the case but I also think like one of the things I thought about is like the value of like an ordered universe so like 
for example like the tsunami that occurs it's not really random where it's like oh god's like oh i'm gonna throw this tsunami on the earth right now because i feel like it it's more of we live in an ordered universe that has these certain laws that certain things like tsunamis are going to develop and it's just going to happen as it, it unfolds with say like natural laws and processes so i think like living in like an ordered and discoverable universe um it's part of the reason why there are these like natural evils that exist um because it seems like for there to be no tsunamis we'd have to either live in like a non-ordered universe or universe that would have some sort of order that would allow for like no evils at all and like you have like the whole butterfly effect thing so that's kind of like the one of the things i thought about here um that i don't think bishop baron really brought up but is an interesting kind of response um, especially natural evil is like this the value of like an ordered universe so i don't know if you have anything you want to add and I, I like to, since they've so kindly brought in Dostoevsky here, I just like yeah. to say that <laughs> I just have to say that you could, they could also have turned back to um, Dostoevsky's own response to freedom and and also suffering because Dostoevsky has suffered significantly in his life. Like two of his three kids died before they were three years old from epilepsy, a condition that he passed on to them, and he felt so much guilt about it that it was perhaps the single most strength strong reason and his inspiration for writing the brothers karamazov is because his two kids died before he was they were three and one died at three months old i think and and mm -hmm. he suffered suffering throughout his life and on his response to suffering as well compare that suffering to the beauty of christ and and you're like yes there's evil in this world yes there's suffering but the love and glory and the beauty which comes with this the idea that the greatest being in the entire universe would step down from heaven to die for us it's just so much greater than all this suffering that even if it was true that this suffering existed that there was absolutely no justification for it all suffering in this world would be a speck in comparison to the ideal of the ideal of uh christ dying for us and resurrecting from the grave so even if there was absolutely no theodicies on this world I think that's one of the reasons why he said that even if there was no explanation or there's no necessarily rational reason for us to believe in God, that he'll still believe in Christ over anything else is because the beauty of Christ is so immense that if you compare suffering to Christ, it's a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the sea of that love. Mm. And that's just what I think Dostoevsky would say. And that's just the image that Dostoevsky is presenting. It's like, yes, there's suffering in this world, accept it, but also accept Christ as well. And that suffering just the strength of that suffering just decreases significantly. And it's just understanding that, which is which is one of the keys to understanding the, the rest of the thing. And But actually, there's also something else I want to say is that, well, actually, what was I? I think I completely forgot about what I was trying to say after that. But yeah, I think that, do you have anything to say about that? I'll, I'll try to think about. No, I mean, I think it's pretty good, just like a pretty good overview. So mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't really yeah. have too much to add mm -hmm. with parts like, the next clip is really interesting where um he talks about like death being a good thing under christianity um so if anything you want to add you find your thoughts or do you want to look at this next no bit? i think something listening more to alex would probably help me refine my thoughts again <laughs> okay let's listen to this next bit this is really interesting ever you know life was thrown at us well uh allow me to answer both of your points there the first point about jesus weeping don't don't misunderstand me it's certainly compatible with the kind of, uh, I suppose you would see it as a caricature of the Christian position, but if that were the position, it's certainly compatible with it to be, to, to cry, to be sad, to be upset. The uh, archetypal example here, I think, would be the crucifixion. 
if you were present at the crucifixion, it was a, a, a horrific, tragic event. Everybody's weeping. Everybody's crying, apart from the people initiating the thing, of course. You know, Jesus is suffering. It's a horrible, horrible event. And yet it's still celebrated in the modern day. It's celebrated on Good Friday because we recognize that, yeah, it's a tragic event that's worth weeping over. But ultimately speaking, because this brought about the greatest good, it's worth celebrating this solemn and tragic event. And that's what I'm talking about. Your father dying or some of coronavirus or something, you can weep. You can weep and weep and weep. But as a Christian, you have to deep down accept that it's worth it, that this is a good thing, that I'm glad that God's will is being done here. Because otherwise you're saying that you're not glad when God's will is being done, which seems to be uh, out of character for for a Christian. I would just add that uh, you're perfectly entitled to ask what kind of consolation does the atheist give? I remember when uh, Christopher Hitchens... I don't think we need to get into this atheist part because um, it's not really relevant to our response. But Alex's background is very aesthetic. I just kind of noticed that um, listening to this clip. What are your thoughts here overall, Josh? I think there's one phrase I should refer him to is to live as Christ and to die as gain. When you accept the Christian worldview, you accept that as well. And I don't think there's any problem with actually celebrating death and celebrating the beauty of death. And it's like, well, death is only one of the journeys or one of the places in, in the long path that which is life. It's like you you only like death is only one stage you go beyond state on beyond death and what you see is beautiful it's it's, a, it's an eternal relationship with god and that's something that i think we always have to think about it's like if that and let's take about the celebration about the death of the father right it's it's like mm. if it's true that your father was going to heaven after he died surely you should celebrate i mean of course it's going to be sad but at the same time it is worthy of celebration if you got what i mean like, if I mm -hmm. died, I, I don't want people to be mourning about me forever. It's like, they should celebrate because, I mean, I, I I would go to heaven. And if not, and I do end up in hell, then justice has been done. And, well, what am I to complain about it, if you got what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, at the end of the day, justice is done and we someone's in heaven. So I think that's the solution to that, the celebration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my father um, talks about like how one of the first times he ever went to a Christian funeral when he was like, I think in like his 20s, um, there was all this celebration. He was so confused with like what was going on because um, he just realized like, well, as a Christian, like to die is gain. Um, so like, I think Alex is partially right, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't mourn um, when someone passes away in this life. Like it's still really hard for us who are stuck on this side of life. Um, so I don't know. I just, it seemed like to me, like, I didn't really get what Alex was arguing at, at this bit. Um, though it was interesting. So do you have any last thoughts? We can get into this last bit. Let's get into the last bit. I, yeah. Awesome. Here's the last bit where Alex kind of gives his conclusion on why he thinks atheism, um, best explains reality in a sense. If you think there are philosophical reasons that are kind of really compellingly leading you to believe that some form of God, and from that you have to make sense of the world, think, Sure, it makes sense to be a Christian, right? But if you accept the premise that I put forward, which is if you start with the suffering, it doesn't seem to lead to God. Then the question becomes, what is more obviously present? And to me, when I when I wake up, when I reflect on the state of the world, when I reflect on the, the nature of contingency and the nature of causation, but I also reflect on the nature of death and suffering and misery, the thing that's more obviously real and more undeniably real, and therefore I think a better philosophical starting point, you know, more, more justified starting ground, is the existence of the suffering. If I cannot get from that existence of suffering, which is undeniable, nobody can deny that that exists. If I can't find a route from that suffering to the existence of a loving God, 
then I can't use Christianity to make sense of the world that I find myself in. You're welcome to go in the other direction if you like. But if, if you share in my view that suffering is so obviously present that it should be the start of philosophy, I don't think that you make sense with Christianity alone. What do you think about suffering being like the fundamental starting point of um, philosophy, Josh? Sorry, I think my mic went a bit haywire. Okay, I think it should be good. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, fine. so essentially, I think that I mean, I'm happily accepting that if suffering is the start of your philosophy, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'll necessarily call that suffering. I'll call that psychology. But I mean, if if you do accept suffering as your beginning, I think I think you could easily turn towards God. I mean, through the theodicies and also the the problem of suffering is as much a problem of atheism as it is a problem of Christianity, especially from a psychological perspective. It's like, well, we know suffering is bad, but why exactly is suffering bad? And and Alex seems to be presenting it as a very objective problem, not just some subjective problem, which is subjectively dismissed or a subjective preference of the human race. I mean, in order for his formulation to stand, I think he has to accept some sense of there's something objectively wrong with that suffering. But when you accept that there's something objectively wrong with suffering, it's it's almost impossible to find an objective problem with suffering on naturalism or if God doesn't exist, because it goes back to the is ought problem or even just some fundamental biological facts. You can you can measure almost everything in this world with with um, with with statistics. This pain has this this pain, this suffering has led to some certain chemicals in your brain releasing in your brain. This this fire that you accidentally touch has kicked off some nervous cells and stuff like that. You can measure all of this stuff, but it doesn't mean that there's anything objectively wrong with that feeling. Just as like you you see a beautiful painting and you, there's some other brain chemicals which get out in your brain. Well, what's objectively better one over the other, right? I mean, it's it's that necessary for, you, it's and in Jordan B. Peterson's term, you need that narrative structure under underlying your reality in order to explain or to in order for you to have some sense of objectivity, to have that explanation for why suffering is so bad. And when you start from suffering under this ob observation or this worldview, this structure, you soon see that suffering points nowhere to naturalism, or at least I should rephrase myself to say, suffering objective suffering points nowhere to naturalism but directly to man's need for god which then furtherly strengthens your philosophical argumentation which is well if man if suffering does point to god and suffering does exist then well you should believe in god and now we have more reason to believe in god from a philosophical and also a suffering or psychological aspect that's kind of my thoughts mm. Yeah, no, I think that those are good thoughts. Um, the one thing I thought about um, is it seemed kind of bizarre to say start with suffering, but like regardless, I was thinking about um, like I've been to like sub-Saharan Africa in a place where there's tremendous suffering um, and those people believe in God. So it seems like to me like the people who experience the most suffering in this world, at least is like humans who can like cognitively like examine and analyze things. These are people who believe in God and they have the most suffering. So I think that's just kind of like an interesting counterpoint um, to what Alex is saying. And then I think I'd agree with a lot of what you say, Josh. I just don't see um, – I just don't see like how you like you get from suffering to well okay there's just no god just a almost like a priori um in terms of like a starting point so and then i think a lot of like people who believe um they don't believe in god because of like um philosophical arguments like most of my believers i know they don't believe in god because they read like the contingency argument or the column or something they believe in god because it makes the most sense of reality and the real experience and understanding of his presence in reality um so i don't know i just think there's some issues with alex's starting point though 
it, it is very interesting. So, yeah. So I completely agree with you with the point on the suffering in Africa and stuff like that, because, because I mean, at the end of the day, what I think we all see is that people need to have meaning. People need to have meaning to act out of life. And these people in Africa, they don't have, they don't, they can't, they, they can't find a way out of their situation in the most direct way, in the sense that they don't have that opportunity. All, all, all they do is they, they're starving. And, and, and it is a very sad and dark mm-hmm. situation to be in that. I mean, I've, I've been in Africa as well. And, and, and it's a very beautiful culture and a beautiful people. And it's just very sad to see the suffering there. But, but I've also, at the same time, I've never seen as many strong believers in my, mm-hmm. all my travels. Yeah than in Africa and it's and it's something that's always been in my heart and I think there's something which I think Jesus says it's like what is it for a man to to lose his soul and gain the world or something along those lines mm-hmm. I mean yeah. if 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 you could choose between heaven or having no suffering in this world I'm sure you'll choose heaven every single day and if it's true that suffering does lead or does provide the opportunity for people to choose God over over your over like atheism or choose God and reach heaven despite the suffering, then I think that suffering is completely justified no matter how severe it is because, because that beauty and that relationship with God is so much greater as seen in the people in Africa and, and as seen by so many people who suffer all around the world who actually turn to God as a result of suffering. It's, it's a choice. It's a challenge that we all must face. But if we take advantage of it and use it to strengthen ourselves, we have a great opportunity on our hands to to, to, to really strengthen our walk with Christ. And that's something which I think is very important to keep in mind. Yeah, there's a debate between Alex and Inspiring Philosophy on, like, the problem of evil. And, like, I, I can almost hear it again where Alex just kind of assumes that, like, suffering is just bad. Like, all suffering is just bad. Uh, but if you think about it, like, a world without any suffering, just a priori, no chance for, like, moral growth and such, sounds like a pretty bad world as well, almost. Um, and, you know, you can talk about, like, heaven and such, but I don't think it's, a like, a, sym- a symmetrical thing there. Um but so I just think there's a lot of things where um, Alex just kind of assumes here that suffering is just this bad thing that shows that God does probably does not exist. And it just doesn't seem like that's the case. So uh, we're like, that's the end of the clips we have, Josh. Um, we'll, we'll head towards wrapping things up here. Do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you want to share um, with regards to this debate or anything else? I mean, I'll, I'll just like to let the audience know that I do actually have a note on my on my blog, Apologetics for All, where you could find my notes for this debate and also a few other debates that I've reviewed in the past. So if you're interested in this debate and you don't have time to actually watch the entire debate, then just go onto the blog and just read it, just check it out. And it's handwritten in my debate writing. So, I mean, <laughs> it might be a bit messy, but I mean, you should get a general idea of what we're talking about, both what Bishop Barron says and also what Alex O'Connor says. So if you're interested in that, just feel free to go check it out and it's there for you it should be out quite soon yeah no that's great um and there's a link down below to josh's channel his youtube channel apologetics for all great stuff there and as well to the full debate if you want to listen to this really good conversation between alex and bishop Aaron. um but i think that's about we're all going to be done here we're going to be done here sorry i can't talk um so if you're new to here in apologetics i encourage you to subscribe leave a like and if you enjoy the show you can support us on patreon.com so i should hear in apologetics for as little as a dollar a month really appreciate everyone's support through there if you enjoy the channel or you can press join and become a youtube member but if nothing else um needs to be said josh Thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone who's listening. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you being with us, Wesley, Curity, Susan, everyone else. And Alex, if you ever listen to this review, you're great. We disagree. Uh, but you're, you're, you're a great speaker, a great debater, and you have a lot of good ideas. So, yeah. Uh, thank you, everyone, and God bless. God bless.